Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this webinar sponsored by the Migration Policy Institute's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy, titled Career and Technical Education as a Bridge to High School English Learner Success. We're delighted that all of you could join us. And um, uh, before we get going, uh, first of all, I'll just say that my name is Margie McHugh. I'll be moderating. I'm the director of MPI's <clears throat> National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. And just a few logistical or housekeeping uh, points before we get going. You can see there up on the screen that if you have problems accessing the webinar, uh, please give us a call 202-266-1929 or email us at events at migrationpolicy.org. And we love receiving uh, any of your questions during the, uh, during the entire course. Uh, of the webinar, but we'll save them mostly for the end, but it's great to have them in advance so that we can figure out how to kind of package them for the different speakers. There's no voice Q&A though, so please use the Q&A function during the webinar or write to us at events at migrationpolicy.org. You can also tweet at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. Um, so today's webinar has as its foundation a report our center released today uh, titled Unlocking Opportunities of uh, Supporting English Learners Equitable Access to Career and Technical Education. Many of you who are joining us know that supporting high quality education for English learners has been one of our center's core areas of focus since we were founded uh, within MPI back in 2007. So this is a, a, a part of the larger body of work we do here at the center. Uh, next slide, where we have a very, uh, uh, very deep focus on the education and training pipeline generally in terms of supporting immigrants and their children uh, to succeed and uh, successfully integrate in the US. And so our big portfolios include early childhood education and care, K-12 education, adult ed, and workforce development, as well as a focus very broadly on language access, both within those systems and in other major service systems. And also, especially being at the national, looking at these issues from the national as well as the state and local level, we've always had a commitment since our founding uh, to try and improve governance of integration policy at the national level. So some of you may be aware that the Biden administration has launched a task force on new Americans where federal agencies are all looking at their policies. So if you're, if you're not connected to that work and, uh, and you have some opinions about how federal policy might actually be improved um, to, to help you all in your work support integration, please be in touch or, or look for that uh, on, the, on the Domestic Policy Council's website. Uh, we'll keep you updated too if, you, uh, if you're on our mailing list. Um, so, um, so moving more to today's webinar, um, you'll be hearing from Julie Sugarman, a senior policy analyst for K-12 education here at MPI. Uh, I'll introduce all three of the speakers in a little more detail in a bit. Um, also, Alta Gracia or Grace Delgado, who is the executive director of multilingual services for the Aldean Independent School District in Texas, and Brooke Martin, who is the executive director for career and technical education um, also in the Aldean um, School District. So we are really excited to have both of them uh, join us to talk about what they've managed to do together in that district to really uh, make these services work for English learners. Uh, but first we'll move to Julie, um, who, uh, who is the author of the report that release, was released today. Many of you are familiar with Julie's work. She's um, She's growing old in this field, just like I am. <laughs> she's, um, she's been in the field for over 20 years now, um, serving as a leading researcher and policy analyst uh, on English learners and education for immigrant background students more generally. Um, she's, uh, what I love about her work is that she, um, she focuses a good part of her time trying to kind of welcome new people into the field. She's been publishing a series of English learner insights um, in her work here at MPI that sort of try to help people who are concerned about education issues for immigrant background children and their families uh, actually really understand um, how the K-12 field works. And uh, at the same time, she plays a key thought leadership role 
um, in national policy circles, uh, focusing both on assessment, uh, uh, EL assessment issues, as well as uh, issues related to late arriving immigrant students, among others. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to Julie um, to take us through, give us a tour of, uh, of her report. Oh. Um, hi, everybody. I'm so delighted to uh, be with you today and, and to be sharing the information from this report. So I want to uh, start by uh, talking a little bit about some long-term trends. It's been very interesting doing this work, seeing from an English learner researcher point of view, seeing how a lot of the same trends that we've been talking about in English uh, language learner uh, education have sort of come up in, in the CTE as well. And so um, I just wanted to bring these trends up because you'll sort of see as we go through, um, and I think um, Brooke and Grace's presentation as well, that um, a lot of these things will sort of bubble up um, in, in the examples um, that you hear about. Um, one of the really big uh, issues in education is ensuring opportunities to access a mainstream curriculum. Um, this has been obviously very central to English learners um, because it's really part of the definition of English learners that they um, are federally defined as, uh, as being English learners until they reach a point where they are able to um, perform in the classroom sort of at, at uh, roughly the same uh, way as other, um, other students. Uh, and so that's really a fundamental piece of the work that we do is making sure that students can not only learn to speak English, but access a mainstream curriculum in, in English and other languages. There's also a, a question of tracking. Uh, many of you may be familiar with this word, but if you're not, it, it refers to a system of um, putting students into one track or one pathway of education and, and more um, typically um, discussed in the upper grades, but happens in the elementary grades too. Um, and it's something you really kind of can't get out of. If you're a lower student, you're a lower student in all of your areas and um, a lot of sort of negative consequences go along with that. And so for um, uh, several decades, many decades, we've been really working at thinking about um, bringing kids together in new ways. And, and this certainly um, is, is part of the, the what we'll talk about with some changes in CTE uh, in just a second. Um, another um, long-term trend is increasing academic standards, talking about career and college and career readiness. It's probably, again, a phrase that you've um, been hearing a lot. And this is something sort of signaling that we wanna give access to uh, all of the pathways to everyone. So again, sort of taking away that stigma of, oh, if you're this type of student, you go into this type of pathway. But if you're this type of student, you can have access to college or to anything. So really thinking about increased standards for everyone. Um, as I mentioned, those of you who are, are from the EL side will um, be interested to hear, I think that uh, what I was interested to find out was that there's really been a shift from back when I was in high school and we called it vocational education, um, really focused on the trades. Um, career and technical education is really a revitalized area of education, including the trades and also um, STEM subjects, other kinds of, um, we might call them white collar professions. Um, and it's really sort of changed and revitalized and, and included a lot of new areas um, compared to, um, you know, the way that it was uh, when, when I was in high school, maybe some of you were as well. Um, and uh, so it, there's a wider, a very wide range now of um, pathways that are things that you can do, um, get certified right out of high school and, and get a job in to things that are um, that you would need to get a bachelor's degree uh, or higher in order to do. Um, in using data to ensure equity, something that MPI has been very interested in and, and talking about um, looking at disaggregated data from historically underserved student groups. So how are English learners doing? How are students with disabilities doing and so on? Um, and then capacity and systems building. So recognizing the complexity of each strand of what, the school, of what schools do um, and putting systems in place and helping educators to understand and navigate them. This has been a really big effort um, as things have gotten more complicated and, and we've um, tried to be serving all of our students um, with all of these programs. 
So uh, as I often do, I want to share a few statistics. Um, the, all of the statistics I'll be sharing uh, here are from the school year 2019-2020, uh, both because there's uh, with national data, there's a bit of a lag a couple of years before we get the data. And also it's, it was the last year pre-pandemic, so to speak. I mean, I know 2020 was, was part of that, but this was data collected before. Um, so the, all of this data is sort of the situation before COVID. Um, English learners are about 6.7% of the high school population. Many of you know it's about 10% of the whole K-12 population, so a little bit lower if you just look at grades 9 through 12. And uh, um, similar to all, uh, all the grades, it's a really wide range in the, in the high school. In West Virginia, English learners only make up 0.7% of the population, and in New Mexico, it's 12.9%, so um, a very wide range. 71% uh, of English learners graduate in four years compared to 87% for all students. And those rates for all students and for the subgroups have all been um, going up um, pretty steadily in, in the last couple decades. Uh, and then finally, this data is actually from the census rather than something collected from the schools. Um, but 88% of foreign born youth age 18 to 24 have a high school degree or equivalent like the GED compared to 95% of all youth. Um, so that's a different population from who we would call English learners, but this is the data that we have available. And I wanna also mention, cause it'll come up again that we, the data that we have is generally uh, from the government is for all English learners, and it doesn't really take into consideration the wide diversity within the English learner group. Um, for example, students who are newcomers who've just arrived, especially those who arrive um, who are older students and don't have um, the level of education in their native language in their native uh, country um, that would be equivalent to what we have here. Those students have very different needs from, for example, students who've been here um, right along since kindergarten kindergarten, but are still English learners. So you really, um, we'll get into some data talking about that. Looking at the different um, populations is a, is a really critical um, thing to do. So some federal policy supporting English learners in CTE. Um, first, I'll talk about Perkins, which is the Perkins 5, which is sort of the shorthand for the reauthorized um, bill that um, covers uh, as career and technical education, um, started out as, again, as vocational education. Um, this uh, iteration of Perkins, uh, which was passed in, um, sorry, I didn't write it down. I think it was 2018, um, focused really strongly on educate equity and access. And that was really a, a, a turning point or a, you know, a, a big focus for, for this particular reauthorization. Um, states are required to use funds to support the recruitment of special populations. Um, that's a term that's used in that bill, in that legislation to refer to the um, populations like English learners, students with disabilities, all of the groups that they want, that they're really concerned about are not, um, participating in a proportion to the uh, size of the population. And so people have been really concerned about that. Um, so going right along with that, they, are requ they require data disaggregation um, and requirements for both states and local education agencies to look at the participation and achievement rates of these special populations. And if there's discrepancies between, um, you know, they make up 10% of your population, but only 2% of your CTE students to uh, look at ways to rectify that. Uh, and then there's also uh, requirements in the law for consultation with representatives of various uh, special populations. Um, within the English learner world, of course, there are um, many laws that we're familiar with that um, require students to be given access to all of the same things that every that EL students to be given access to all of the same things that other students have. Um, the Lau versus Nichols uh, um, Supreme Court case and the Dear Colleague letter from 2015 being the most uh, frequently noted. Um, and all of those really support this principle of giving equal opportunities to meaningful fully participate. So not just to be enrolled, but to really be able to be successful. Um, I also wanted to point out under this uh, section that Title III of the Every Student Succeeds Act, which is the part of um, ESSA that gives, um, that provides money for English learners and, and provides a lot of regulations around how they're educated, you can actually use Title III funds for CTE for L's. And I gave you the reference there that in Section 3115. Um, that doesn't mean that your specific district uh, might not have some, um, you know, specific regulations around that, but in general, it is in the, in the bill. 
So um, I wanted to, one of the things that really um, prompted me to want to look at this issue is uh, to know whether students who are English learners are over or underrepresented in CTE. And you may be looking at this uh, map saying, my goodness, that's a crazy looking map. It's got zeros and ones all over it and not the numbers I'm used to seeing. Um, but I had seen an, um, a map that was showing the percent of English learners who were taking part in, in CTE and it was a little bit misleading or it was hard to really understand because I didn't know how many students there were. So if it says 5% of, of, um, of uh, CTE students are English learners, is that a lot? Is that a little? It's hard to know. So this map actually shows you the over and under representation. So zero means the share of ELs in CTE is exactly the same. So 5% of the population is English learners, 5% of your CTE um, uh, population is ELs. That would be zero on the map. Um, and you can see that most of them are pretty close zeros and ones. There was um, a few states that um, where there's a little bit of overrepresentation um, in uh, uh, a little bit of overrepresentation in Idaho, California, and Virginia, and slightly underrepresented in Alaska, Indiana, and Rhode Island. But Looking at the country as a whole, it's it's pretty proportionate, but that's a, a really important point because you can't really tell how this plays out on the ground. It's just state by state, so you don't know whether a particular district or a particular school is over or underrepresented um, unless you have access to that data. Obviously, states can look at it, um, districts and schools can look at their own data, um, but you know, as a researcher, it's it's a little bit harder to get a handle on um, whether this idea that it seems pretty representative across the board really plays out on the ground. Um, and then again, as I mentioned earlier, it, we only have data for English learners as a whole group. We don't have data for, um, for example, newcomers or students with limited or interrupted formal education or um, students who speak Spanish or any of these other groups. So again, we can sort of get a general idea for how um, English learners as a whole do, but there's a lot of deep dive uh, information that you'd really want to do to get more um, understanding of what's happening in, in a particular district. Um, this uh, chart shows the number and share of English learners in the career clusters. So um, the federal government has 16 career clusters that it refers to. Um, and it's interesting because they each um, include sort of a range of skill level um, occupations. So both um, things that you might just, you might get a certificate um, to uh, work uh, at this job right out of high school, might be things that you need to get a bachelor's degree and they're sort of all combined. So as you're looking at at um, the, uh, you know, who, who goes into what areas. It's a little bit hard to tell um, if you're looking from an equity perspective um, in terms of, for, for uh, many of these uh, clusters in terms of, um, you know, really being able to see at a glance whether there's equity. Um, this orange line represents, uh, I had mentioned before, 6.7% of, um, high, of uh, high, high school students are English learners. And so if you look at the, uh, the, the greenish, yellowish line behind it, you can see that most of the clusters fall pretty close to that line. So again, not a terrible amount of overrepresentation or underrepresentation. Um, there is some underrepresentation in the, um, the um, clusters to the left-hand side of, of the um, of the chart, uh, agriculture, food and natural resources, marketing, finance, manufacturing, and health science. Um, but again, not an extraordinary amount. Um, so um, I, the other thing I wanted to men mention um, as we've been talking about um, underrepresentation and overrepresentation is that you can't just sort of make a decision that, oh, if there's overrepresentation or underrepresentation, that's automatically bad. That's just something to signal to you to maybe find out some more information. Um, because, you know, there's lots of reasons why groups of kids would be um, differently in different um, clusters or, or want to participate or not participate. So um, again, I just wanted to caution that it's not an automatic that being underrepresented is a bad thing. Um, it's just a signal to want to learn more. So now um, I just want to talk a little bit about what's in sort of the meat of the paper, um, talking about barriers and opportunities in serving English, lear English learners. I'll talk a little bit first about barriers um, and just going to give a couple of little examples, um, but you can get more information in the in the paper that came out today. 
Um, so some of the barriers are listed here, um, starting on the left-hand side, um, thinking about communication. Um, there have been a number of uh, qualitative research papers uh, or descriptive research papers that have talked about students saying, I never got any information about um, how uh, course requirements work for graduation. I didn't get information about um, CTE or about other things. And, and that does seem to be a trend in the field. Um, I don't know that there's any anything that's really quantified it, but um, we know that, um, you know, Providing information to speakers of other languages can be challenging um, for a lot of reasons, and you know there could be a lot of reasons why students feel they don't get this information. But obviously, if they don't know, CTE is a is is not a requirement; it's an elective area. So if they don't know about it, um, they might not ask to to be included in it. So um, communication could be a, a really big issue in terms of who is um, participating. Um, the second issue is mindsets. Um, we talked earlier about some really powerful policies around equity and access, but access to courses really is about mindset too and about who um, the people that are sort of the gatekeepers of um, these courses and, and scheduling and, and all of those things, who they see as, as be belonging in CTE or maybe who they don't see as belonging in CTE. Um, and maybe some thoughts about um, whether uh, that English learners should learn English before they go into these sorts of classes. People have lots of beliefs about um, English learners and bilingualism and all of those things. And so, um, you know, it's it, it can be a, a barrier if the folks that are advising kids don't really understand English learners. Um, program and course conflicts. Um, this is sort of a whole set of uh, barriers I talk about in the paper and, and has, is a really sort of big and in some cases intractable um, issue because um, if, if for newcomers, uh, especially kids who arrive at 13, 14, 15, they have a lot of other things that they need to be taking. They may be taking ESL classes, English as a second language. Um, they may have double periods for some of their academic classes. So with social studies, is actually two periods long because they get their content primarily in one period and then they get a lot of language support in the other period or it can be all combined of course as well. Um, and they may be taking some remedial courses to catch up in work that they haven't um, they haven't had yet. And then that can um, play out later in um, in high school as well. By the time they get to be juniors or seniors, they may be trying to catch up on courses they need for credit. So um, all of those issues could um, cause students just not to have time or room in their schedule for, um, for CTE. Um, and program conflicts, um, again, things that are, I, I'm, I don't say this to say that it ought to be different, but just to say there are serious conflicts. Obviously, if you um, have a newcomer program and maybe it's in a, um, a school that doesn't have a CTE program also in that school, um, then you're looking at a situation where, well, we know that the new, this newcomer program is great for our kids and they should really be going into this um, for their first year and then they'll go into a comprehensive high school. But, um, you know, that's just a question. It's something to weigh that they may not have access to CTE while they're there. And, and you might wonder um, how we'll talk maybe a little bit about this, how you can make access to them um, for them. Um, in terms of priorities, um, you know, I think this would be familiar to any of us that have worked with um, EL and immigrant populations that a lot of these students uh, really need to work um, to earn money for their families or for, um, you know, they, they have come to the US to um, earn a living and um, discover that they are only 16. So they have to go to school because um, you have to go to school until you're 18 in the state that they're in. So um, they feel, um, you know, torn between wanting to work for money and then um, taking classes. Um, some kids can um, feel like, oh, I, uh, you know, we have a family business. I'm not going to take CTE because I'll go into my, my parents' business. Um, and that can be a great choice. Um, but, you know, it's good to know what the options are and, and you know, having an um, opportunity to train for something else in CTE might be something that we really want them to understand. Um, I'm going to just go a little bit quickly. Um, uh, in terms of unauthorized students, um, there are many certifications that require a social security um, number. And so students that don't have a social security number may feel, why would I take the CTE class when I can't get the certification? Um, and then finally, this is, uh, there's a lot of this information in the paper. So I'm just gonna go fairly quickly for um, the sake of time um, that 
the things that um, effective schools do to serve English learners in CTE are leveraging policy and systems on the one hand and relationships. So again, you have rules about who must be served, but then you also have the ability to talk to people and say, oh, you know, I, I heard that you didn't think um, to uh, tell this person about CTE and maybe you should for these reasons. Um, so really building up um, the, the ability for people to think differently. Um, communication in ways that work for students and families, obviously providing families with information in a language they understand, um, making sure that people that are trusted sources of information have um, a lot of understanding of what it is that uh, CT is all about so that they can communicate with the students that they talk to anyway. Um, creating linkages between school departments and with external entities. I think we're going to hear a lot about this from um, Brooke and Grace. Um, taking advantage of students' linguistic and cultural assets, I wanted to mention um, something like offering uh, interpretation and translation as an option for CTE can be a great way, again, to bridge to what the students are already doing, already interested in um, working with EL programs to uh, make that happen. And then finding creative solutions to meet students where they are. Obviously, a lot of students have, as I mentioned, other um, priorities, other things they need to do. So trying to get work-based learning credit for a thing for a job they already have uh, could be a good solution. Um, uh, creating flexible schedules for taking classes so they can work in the afternoon or, um, uh, or take evening classes are all things that um, a lot of uh, programs have done in order to make sure that students can really access as much of the opportunity as possible. So I'm going to stop there and throw it back to Margie, who is going to introduce Brooke and Grace. Great. Thank you so much, Julie. And thanks to all of you who are sending in questions already. Um, uh, please remember the uh, Q&A function there. And also thanks to those of you who are communicating with us over chat. And definitely don't worry, the um, presentation, uh, the, the webinar will be available online. Uh, you know, you'll be able to access all the information that we're talking about here after the webinar. Um, so now on to, um, on to hearing about some uh, uh, really robust efforts in terms of uh, creating a lot of communication um, across the EL and the CTE functions within a school district. So we're delighted to have Grace Delgado joining us. Uh, she's the Executive Director for Multilingual Services in the Aldine, Aldine, sorry, Aldine. Um, independent School District, um, uh, just north of Houston. And she's been in the Texas education system for almost 30 years, uh, working at the classroom level, coach, um, uh, school, central office. So she um, has really seen the system, uh, system and the issues from multiple, multiple uh, perspectives. So we're delighted to have her uh, joining us and presenting. And then also her colleague, Brooke Martin, um, who is in a uh, sort of um, uh, commensurate um, position within the school district where she's the executive director for CTE. And she's been working in Aldine for all of her education career um, since 2010. And similarly has worked at the classroom campus and district level. And don't worry as you're looking at, that, uh, at her dense description of what she's doing because you're about to hear about it all. And to me, at least coming more from the adult ed field, it's just so um, gratifying to see just all of the, um, the opportunities that are being uh, provided um, through the, uh, the CTE programs there in the district. So I'm just excited um, for myself and for everyone on the webinar that we're about to, um, to hear from these two wonderful, uh, wonderful educators and administrators. So over to you, um, over to you ladies. Thank you. So in Aldine ISD, we always start our presentations with a cub. It's a combined content and language objective. Uh, so I'm going to get ahead and, and start with our cub. Um, today, we're going to know the work that Aldine ISD is doing to create CTE supports for multilingual learners. Uh, we're going to understand how collaboration between the CTE and multilingual departments can provide linguistic and academic support for multilingual learners. And we're going to be able to articulate one action step that you can take to build collaborations that ensure students are supported in all classrooms. Um, we talked about where Aldin is located, and we are in the north side of Houston. So here's a map of the Houston area and the red 
area, it's Aldin ISD. Um, the Bush Intercontinental Airport, if you land there, you are in Aldin ISD. There is no Aldin, Texas, though. Uh, but the red area comprises our district. Um, our vision is that Aldin ISD students will receive a dynamic and unparalleled education that guarantees choices and opportunities today and in the future. And our mission is that we will provide a rigorous and enriching educational experience that prepares every student for success in college, career, and life. Uh, something to mention about Aldine, it has about 84 schools. Um, and here are our demographics. Um, so this data is current as of yesterday. Um, the district as a whole has a little bit over 60,000 students. And of those, a little over 27,000 are emerging bilingual students. So in Texas, we call our ELs um, emerging bilinguals. Um, before I send that to Brooke to give us our CTE enrollment, I was doing the math when Julie was mentioning um, the proportion of emerging bilingual students in the high schools. Uh, so as a district, we are 45% emerging bilinguals. Specifically in high school, out of that 45%, 20% are emerging bilinguals. But when we look at the numbers as a whole for high school, we have 30% of the high school students are emerging bilingual students. Um, so our numbers are higher than what the nation has for emerging bilinguals and even what the state has. Because in Texas, we have about 20% of our students are emerging bilingual. So Aldine is double and a little bit more of that. Uh, but Brooke can share a little bit of the demographics of CTE. Thank you, Grace, and thank you all for having us. Um, we're super excited to share all the awesome things that we're doing. But um, our CTE enrollment is um, just under 24,000 students. And um, if you look at when we kind of break down the numbers a little bit more, there's just under 9,000 emergent bilingual students served in our CTE courses. And so um, we, we like to say in our district, all means all. And so we like to ensure that we're providing an opportunity. and. Um, it's actually 30% of our CTE enrollment. So um, again, we're we're still right there with his grace was sharing. So um, so as um, we were mentioning earlier, you know, they've uh, talked about CTE and stats and just here in Aldine, we serve students six through 12. So um, we start in middle school and we see you all the way until you walk across the stage. And it's more than just a sequencing of courses. So in CTE, you have opportunities for industry-based certifications, um, dual credit opportunities, those workforce certificates. And the great thing about this is that actually prepares you while you're in our district, we can provide you internships, work experience, and then you can either move forward and go to college or we're providing you an opportunity to go bridge you right into the workforce. So um, when we say it's more than course sequencing, there's a lot there that's offered. Um, and then when we do our Perkins allocations every year, we have to actually look at our, our labor market data. And that's crucial because it also takes us an opportunity to look at not just as a general what we're doing to serve CTE students, but we're looking at all of our subpopulations. And it helps us to ensure that we're being equitable to all of our students. Um, it's funny because you brought up Title III and how you can use some of that funding towards our CTE students. And Grace and I were actually just talking about what professional development can we do to bridge the gap with our teachers to ensure that it, it is a wraparound service of support. And so um, it's really a great opportunity to explore. And so next, uh, we have 29 campuses that we directly support, and that includes middle and high school. And of our high schools, we have five comprehensive high schools and then several schools of choice. So wherever you go in our district, there is somewhere for you to participate in CTE. And so whether you go through the lottery system or apply to one of our schools of choice, if you stay at our comprehensive high schools, you still have about 18 opportunities to participate in our CTE department. So go ahead and move on. So one of the other things that is very unique, and as Grace and I started partnering over the last year, um, our district has in Texas, we are able to apply for what is called District of Innovation. Through District of Innovation, you can apply for whether you can start your school year early. There's all kinds of 
um, attributes that you can apply for. But one of the things that's specific towards CTE is that we hire individuals that are directly from the industry. Um, this is unique because, I mean, health science, it's great to hear from an actual nurse. Um, HVAC, that's just stuff that not necessarily is can be picked up from a book. And by having that industry experience, it really enhances the program and opportunities for students. The one thing that we hear, and you'll hear it statewide um, and even national, is that the turnover rate for DOI teachers is rather large because they don't have the pedagogy side. You know, as an educator, you, you understand lesson planning and the un, ungodly amount of acronyms that we have in education. I mean, I think in a matter of a year, you probably hear 20 more that have been added on. But um, when, when we have our teachers that come from industry, they really are missing that gap. Um, so within our own department, we have actually started this year a, um, a support program. So we brought them in, we have our cohort this year, and by state law, we have to have 20 hours of professional development. And so we've taken this opportunity to take that 20 hours and intentionally put it towards pedagogy support, but from a CTE lens. Um, our district has great opportunities for professional development, but, but you know, it's the one thing that we always hear is, well, this isn't geared towards math. So we've taken charge of that and partnered with our other departments. Um, multilingual was one of the first ones that we kind of stepped into it. Um, because when they rolled out Elevation, we wanted to get ahead of it with our teachers. But then when we did this cohort this year, we brought in all of our individuals and they sat and they were hands-on with the instructor. And I mean, let me just tell you, DOI teachers have a special place in my heart because teaching was not their primary passion, but they're, now they're here to share their passion with us. And I mean, they. whenever you're talking to them and telling them, especially when we showed them elevation, it was just all these light bulbs went off. And it was like, oh, my goodness, I've been looking for all this. And, oh, I can connect with my students. And the feedback has been amazing. Um, Grace, do you have anything to tag so on to? So to talk a little bit about elevation, that's a, that's a, um, we bought elevation strategies as a district, which is a repository of instructional strategies that focus on engagement and language. Um, and it's available throughout. And we we wanted to purchase because we wanted to, to be able to have teachers have those tools um, available when they're planning for instruction. Um, and we did a big push throughout the district to like layer it and go through our administrators and our instructional support and then get to teachers. Uh, but the beauty of purchasing that for us was that we were able to provide that to 100% of the teachers and in 100% of, of the classrooms. So we have been able to establish these collaborations with not just core teachers, but also all our ancillary staff with like fine arts and CTE and health and PE. So our teachers in those areas also have access to the strategies. It just requires that we are doing that professional development so they can see how this strategy works in the classroom. So an example in this slide is a particular training that happened between uh, with these DOI teachers but the people training them is actually one of our program directors in multilingual and an ESL instructional specialist from the CTE high school who came and helped train the teachers to see how the strategy can work in their classroom. Um, the other picture that you see there, it's a picture from a tweet uh, from Brooke. So Brooke went with us to the NABIC conference this year. Um, and I really appreciated this particular tweet because what she mentioned was, it's not your students or my students, it's our students. Supporting our students no matter what class they are in so that every student has endless opportunities. So just the establishing the collaboration and making sure that we are educating each other um, at this level so we can facilitate these pathways of collaboration among departments and among campuses and among teachers. We have been able to do a few more collaborations in the district to provide information in an accessible way to students. Uh, so back in October, uh, Multilingual wanted to host an activity mainly for our emerging bilingual students in eighth grade. We wanted them to know what opportunities are available for them in high schools and understand like what do they need to graduate and just showcase 
uh, different pathways. So we contacted uh, our CTE partners who were able to contact our schools. And then we were able to showcase those programs and kids were able to talk to kids that are currently in those programs and hear directly from them what they're doing and what these programs are doing for them. So creating this bridge, so when they have to do their selections that Julie was mentioning uh, before, they have talked to somebody that's in that program, they have told them how it works, they have told them the experience, and it helps bridge that uh, for when the students have to make those decisions in their schedules. And we like to do this, we do this in all of our community events. So it's not just our one you know, CTE event and every eighth grader participates in what we call a career exploration. It's the career expo. So they get to see every program of study, but that's not just in our own silos as we've been trying to break that barrier is that, oh, it's our event. And then you know, Grace has her event. And then the face department has their event. We are present at all of these events. We have community meetings that are um, five verticals. We're all there because again, it's all of our students. Another one of our team collaborations happened not too long ago. We were celebrating uh, Women's Month, and this event was specifically for our senior girls. So again, we um, got together and we were able to collaborate with CTE, uh, with the teaching and learning departments, with visual arts, and have an event that was just addressing our girls, um, emerging bilinguals and non-emerging bilinguals in one room and offering like you know, words of encouragement and support as they're as they're channeling and, and moving in uh, in their adult life um, and going into their careers. And there's a picture of our superintendent or our chiefs um, who were offering that to our kids. And just this past weekend, um, there was a Soñadores Summit uh, that happened in the district. And this was addressing Again, something that Julie was mentioning, like sometimes is the legal status of the students. Uh, so in this particular um, summit, um, there was information provided to families and to students uh, to you know, address any issues with status or classes or resources. Um, and we have pictures of the multilingual department being present, providing information to the parents, but the CTE department is also providing information. The picture right on top of where it says Soñadores Summit is a picture of the, the session that CTE actually provided um, for the families and the students. And once again, we have not just the CTE department providing the information, that ESL instructional specialist that was helping train um, the DOI teachers is there supporting the CTE um, information and providing it in the additional language so that he was acting also as a translator for any information needed for the families. I think something that I wanted to mention in regards of access to language that sometimes can become um, a barrier, uh, something we invested on this year was to provide translation services for all campuses. So that's also helping um, campuses access um, a way to communicate with families in any of the 47 languages we have in the district. So um, each campus has a PIN number, they can answer that PIN number or their family can initiate it as well. So that, that facilitates that conversation that sometimes can take away, like you mentioned in regards of talking about educational opportunities um, and any schedules. But I did wanna also highlight this picture um, because Brooke mentioned that we do a lot of work together and we wanna um, be present in each other's activities and, and have our meetings. But one thing that we have been very um, intentional about is about building community together. Uh, so the fun part is that Brooks and I's offices are very close. So we get to like bump into each other a lot. Yeah. Uh, but this is a picture of our first open house ever that we did this year uh, during Christmas time. And we basically decided to host like an open house and have our teams uh, just spend some fellowship time together. And we invited the rest of the building. So teaching and learning and operations and anybody that was in the building. So just having some time to be together and engage together just as people does a lot. So when we need to engage in like work, uh, work uh, collaborations, um, 
we basically know people. We know why they are prioritizing, why they are prioritizing, what's their background. Um, and we can move, like, we don't have to focus on that. We can really focus on that. Okay, your beliefs and my beliefs mesh. We can collaborate in these pieces. How can we make this work with each other? And if Brooke needs me to go somewhere, I'm going to get in my car and go. And I know I can call on Brooke because we've had to spend that time together. Um, and we've seen a lot of um, a lot of growth um, and a lot more that we can do for our kids through moments like this. Like, yes, we do our events together, but spending time together as people has been uh, changing for our teams. There has been also, this has literally been the breakdown of what we like to say, the silos of individual departments. I mean, there was a um, event that we had not too long ago, and there was such a misconception, and I believe it was spoken earlier about the misconceptions of CTE program offerings, and one of the biggest misconceptions was that a student participating in JROTC, it, it's not good for someone who has status issues and what well, could be is it, are we going to get in trouble as a family? And by participating at one of these events, we were able to share with the community, oh no, JRTC is way more than just, you know, military. It's leadership skills. It's trying to grow your own individual. And um, it was such a great opportunity. And by partnering with these with Grace's team and the, the face community, um, we really learned more. And so this collaboration and not being in our silos has really done, it's been amazing work. And I mean, this is only like real one year, not 100% implemented. And I'm just, I'm excited for next year because we have a lot of good things planned. Um, there's the one quote that I like to close. Um, and it has been like a driving force in a lot of these these conversations we've been trying to have and, and collaborations we've been trying to build with multilingual. Um, and it's an African proverb that tells you, if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you go together. Um, and that has driven a lot of this work because we want to go far. We want to take our kids far. Um, and that's going to require for us to, to break those silos and, and come together as people um, to figure out how can we support each other to be able to support students in the classroom as well. So I'm going to stop sharing because I know our time is short and I'm wondering if there are any questions. That's great. No, thank you both very much. Um, I um, It's just so interesting to listen to your presentation. We were, we were out in the field, um, I don't know, probably like eight to 10 years ago looking at uh, 16 to 20 practices in, in districts around the country for, um, for 16 to 26 year olds, just trying to look at what the pathways were. And CTE was just um, such a difficult one for so many school districts that you know they had great resistance from their CTE instructors um, who felt that they just really couldn't handle English learners, even saying it was dangerous, you know, to to be allowing English learners into their classrooms. And so I can see even in a lot of the questions that are coming in that um, a good number of people are are asking about how do you you know how do you really um, uh, break that down and uh, and uh, have collaborations that really make those CT make CTE teachers feel uh, kind of empowered and prepared um, to be opening up access. All of the issues that Julie mentioned, notwithstanding, about how sometimes it's really just there's just not even room in the day for a lot of English learners, especially if they're late arriving. Um, so anyway, eager to eager to get to these. Um, get to these questions but Julie first of all there were a few questions and please folks keep them coming in if we don't get to all of them now um, we'll um, we'll be sure to to answer them um, just individually um, uh, afterwards but so Julie there's a few questions about um, kids about uh, how do we define L's especially you know with um, with having um, reclassified L's or former L's um, and the like. So um, just you want to say a little bit about the construction of um, just when you were talking about the representation of L's uh, in your slides, the data slides? Sure. Yeah. All of the data that I got was from um, the federal government and specifically from the Department of Education. So um, they use the standard um, definition of English learner, those who are um, defined as uh, being in EL status are the, the ones that are counted. Anyone who's exited is not in that group. Anyone who um, 
you know, has, has never been an English learner, is not in that group. So it's really only the, the ones that are formally um, designated. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a, again, it's another issue that we're not able to look at the long term in terms of, um, you know, how do our former English learners do, because they often do even better than students who are never English learners in their academic uh, subjects. Great. Um, and then um, uh, I think, um, uh, Brooke and Grace, I'll just um, uh, maybe ask you to um, one or both of you to say a little bit, uh, but perhaps you, Grace, would be would be more um, the person for this. Um, questions about late arriving uh, English learners. Are there particular um, are there particular um, opportunities that you try to um, steer? those students towards or just um, particular, particular things you might be doing to overcome the barriers that they would face uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of being able to participate um, in CTE, just given the distance that they need to cover in terms of their academic coursework or um, uh, requirements for um, English classes and the like, uh, sort of uh, that kind of crunch. Because I know that, um, when Julie was running um, for a number of years a, a network on of school districts that were receiving a lot of, of older um, English learners, a really big question for them was, you know, how many of those late arriving kids they were losing because mm -hmm. they um, they just felt like they weren't going to make it academically and faced a lot of pressure to work. So anyway, I think there's a lot sort of baked into that question of late arriving students, but. Uh, do you know how many of them you have, how many of them are um, able to make it and succeed in, in CTE um, uh, programs? And are there, is there any secret sauce you have for working with them? So there's no secret sauce and we're always trying to find like better ways to address uh, some of those concerns. So we're, we're testing, we're always doing and testing a few things. Uh, we do have a couple of options for students uh, that are late arrivals or like newcomers that are in, in our secondary campuses. Uh, we have a couple of programs. There is a um, high school that is dedicated to newcomers and it is newcomer dual language. Uh, there is a CTE pathway. There's a couple of CTE pathways in that building and one of them were actually in the process of translating documents because one of them is gonna be offered in Spanish um for for that group and then we also have our accelerated english academy in the other comprehensive high schools um, and that they are inside of the comprehensive high school and they have like a double block of english and um language but they have access to um additional classes um so are, they're not removed from the building and then brought back um in addition to that we are addressing like um auditing um, credits that students may be bringing with them to try to find some of those credits that can be put in their in their um, in their transcript that we may be missing that can help alleviate some of that weight on in the school to open more space for students to actually have access to those other classes but sometimes we may have done incorrectly and we're having these kids take classes that they already came with and for you know for the language or what, whatever barrier we had we were not able to give them credit so we're just testing a few things uh trying to because we do see it we do understand that our overage kids feel that responsibility uh we always have that weight of like the dropout rate when they get to it because they do have to work we saw it with the pandemic we had a lot of kids we, we lost a lot of kids that were working they were frontline workers um, so it's it's always trying and testing. Um, at the NIOPA conference, I said, if it's not illegal, we're going to try it. Um, so that's that's really how we operate. We try to see what's working. And if that doesn't work, we'll try something else. Uh, because what we do want is to provide those choices and opportunities for our kids. And we know that there is a lot they can take advantage through these courses in CTE because it will prepare them better. Um, and they can go into the workforce better prepared and support their families as well. Great. All right, well, one of my favorite things has happened and that is when somebody else asked the question that I was really hoping they would so that I don't have to pretend that we got it um, <laughs> from other folks. So when I was saying that we were out in the field years ago and things didn't look so great um, with, um, with access to CTE, um, 
it really so much of it did have to do with there not being um, kind of uh, professional development for folks in CTE for working with um, multilingual learners. And um, so that's, that's um, one of the questions that came in. It was, at, it's uh, well, a few questions in that area. One is, um, can you just say a little more specifically about that, um, the, P, the, the PD that you did with CTE teachers around those issues? And then we shared the link, of, a participant had sent in the link to Elevation. I know that you spoke about that as part of it. Um, I know that might be like a whole other webinar for you to talk about it, but if you could just maybe sort of steer people, um, you know, towards the uh, kind of key elements of that, that they should be aware of. And maybe if there's anything in particular about um, Elevation that, um, that you didn't address already. So for the CTE teachers specifically, um, one of the things, and I can tell you when I was first a teacher, I vividly remember sitting in a training and someone sitting next to me saying, well, that student will never be able to do web tech because of the coding and you know vocabulary. And I just remember thinking to myself, that's a student you're talking about. You are literally handicapping them before ever giving them an opportunity. And so um, since being in central administration, it has always been a matter of ensuring that our CTE teachers have the right training, but it's tailored to them so that it's useful. The thing that we've had in years past, and you may have seen this in the field and you're experiencing it, is that the training is geared towards math, science, history, English. And as a CTE teacher who has a very specific, maybe health science background or welding, I mean, that that's not going to tailor to us. Our department or our programs are already so unique as it is. And so if you throw something out there that is completely not applicable to our department, you lose your teachers. And so when we have our, the one thing our district has done is when we do our district staff developments, we break out by content area. So all of math goes together and all of CTE goes together, fine arts, they go into their groups. And so you're taking the district initiatives and you're presenting and teaching and training your teachers with your content specifics. And so that has been a crucial piece um, because you're literally, you're literally empowering our teachers to be better and to support our students. And so um, that professional development, when Grace was talking about, you know, we've incorporated elevation. So we had members of her team come in and sit down with every content area and say, this is what it looks like in welding. This is what it looks like in animal science. Take this, how does it work? How does this look in a classroom? And so when we did our trainings across all 48 programs of study, there was a specific example for each one of those areas. So again, it was useful. It meant something from them. They weren't walking away with, is this what it means? If you translate it over to CTE, it, it just alleviated a lot of gray area. So you were giving them, you were comforting them in their own content area to be able to use it. And I think also giving them the time to what, they receive the training, but there's also time for them to work through the kinks, access the platforms, think about a lesson that's coming um, and, and workshop it together, but also with the supports from Brooke's team and my team. So we can address the CTE side and the language side. That is also um, helpful. So it's like Brooke is saying, it's meaningful and they can then turn it and work it out with their students. So professional development, if nothing else, is one piece that really needs to be strengthened. So that way we're working to, to support teachers in how to build those scaffolds for the students. Great. Um, and I'll just say to everyone uh, who's, um, who's with us that, um, that will go at least five minutes over, I would say, just given how many questions we've gotten and the, um, the level of interest and the diversity of the, um, the questions. So a lot of folks are, are commenting on, um, uh, yeah, just what it's like in the places some of them work in terms of trying to get uh, kind of cooperation and attention and get people out of silos. So I think you know, that um, all of the, the work that you you personally, you two personally have been doing to sort of weave things together. I think the lessons of that aren't lost on anyone. Um, so, so on the question though of um, establishing a lot of the school business partnerships that are needed um, for doing some of these things, um, could you talk a little bit about um, who creates those partnerships? Are they done from the central office, you know, just um, 
I would imagine, Brooke, given that you're that there is an ED position over this, that maybe a lot of this um, mm -hmm. is on you. Um, and then there's a also a question about what sort of um, transition or, or reports or data do you have in terms of post CTE? And then if you don't mind, I'll weave into that, um, mm -hmm. that there's an interest too on, you know, in terms of knowing who the multilingual learner or emergent bilingual students are, you know, where do they fall in sort of the data that you have about the programs that they're in and, um, and you know, what they're, uh, what, 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 in terms of the outcomes that you're looking for, you know, sort of where do you see them? Wow, that is a loaded question, and I have a lot of answers. Yeah, sorry, I'm doing my best to weave them together. <laughs> that's okay. So, um, well, so first and foremost, one of the great things that's here in Aldine is our community is amazing. Like, the support, I mean, it, it's kind of like in Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. They show up. Um, we have community partners and businesses that literally come knocking on our door and say, what are we doing? We want to help. We want to do this. We've seen, oh, your kids are going to competition and they're excelling. They're making it to nationals. Um, so, I mean, the, the community support, it's there. Um, we do have, um, within our team, we actually do have a program director of partnerships. And so they work with every single program area and build that relationship and go out in industry. They're on advisory committees in our district, outside of our district, um, Chamber of Commerce, so that we're co continuously meeting with our community and partnering those opportunities. Um, are there limitations sometimes? Of course. Um, but again, we still have other opportunities within our community that are willing to work with us. Um, you know, one of the big ones that we typically tend to see, um, health science. That is a that is probably our largest demand when it comes to uh, program offerings and requests in our district. Um, and of course, there's a need. We know this. Um, but of course, sometimes our status can hinder that opportunity. But then there's other opportunities where we can look at saying, well, maybe there's some insurance opportunities where you can support and still help within the healthcare field. Um, there's other opportunities that we've been really, we really try and say, this is your your passion, this is where you want to be. What are these obstacles? Okay, here's a business partner who's willing to support that and maybe supplement it in a different direction, but you're still within that industry. Um, and so that's been really good. Um, and again, it, it, it really goes back to our partnerships. They're amazing. And we include them in everything that we do when it comes to selecting our programs of study. But then when it comes back time to evaluating, are we still on track? Are we in alignment with industry? And so we bring them back in along with students. And when they get to interact with our kiddos, last night we had a, a business partner at an awards ceremony. And I mean, she was blown away by all of their accomplishments. And so it's really just utilizing your community is a key piece of that because they know that that's our future. And so we're investing in it now, but they're investing it for their for them too. Well, I guess I really feel for a, a lot of the folks who are writing in just saying, well, you know, in the district I'm in, you know, kids get older kids get turned away. And, um, you know, despite what we know about their um, civil rights and um, their access. Um, and uh, so I guess maybe just for the uh, kind of last um, sort of, um, I guess, string of responses from all three of you, if there's anything more that you would, um, first of all, want to say, about um, students who do, who don't have um, legal status and you know particular things that have you seen that you have seen work for them that would be um, that would be good to hear. And then I'm I think there's a really compelling question here too, saying are there specific questions a concerned parent can ask of the school board or school administration to determine whether CTE for Ls is on the right track in a particular school district, which I think is a nice. Um, Kind of global uh, question. So I know um, um, Brooke and uh, and Grace, you have um, frontline experience with this, and Julie, I know it's one of the questions you asked about um, in your research. So um, if any of you who want to take a whack at that one, um, please go ahead. I um, in regards to the parents and the parents asking questions, that's um, one of the pieces that we've been trying to do in multilingual as well has been uh, doing some specific parent trainings and doing the parent empowerment piece because we do find, you know, aversion, concerns about like, oh, I'm afraid to ask the question. So um, that's something I encourage 
all day, every day. Like parents need to be able to access and, and be able to like ask the questions. Um, it also requires on our side to be able to prepare our schools to have those conversations with their parents. And that goes back to like accessing language if needed. But the importance of having that, that dialogue with the parents is critical. Um, I did want to go back in regards of the, um, I do understand because I was looking at some of the questions in regards of like the, the, the barriers in, in the collaboration. Something I like to tell people when, when we're starting to work in this world of, you know, we're in different places and, and, and we want to serve kids, it's to find your allies. Um, it doesn't have to be big, right? Like it doesn't have to be the central office thing, but there are people that want the same things for these multilingual students. And it doesn't have to be a massive move. It can be, oh, you can do that and I can do this. And it can be something small we're doing and we're starting from a classroom to a classroom. So it's not even in the whole building, but it can be something we're doing for each other uh, because we have the same beliefs. We, we are gonna do this little collaboration. Find your allies because you get a lot of bang for your buck when you start doing things together in a smaller scale and people start seeing the change and kids start, achieving certain things. And then you have something that you can showcase. Uh, and then more people wanna hear about it and more people wanna join. Um, so it doesn't have to be this complicated system that is massive that we're trying to like connect all these pieces. Sometimes it's just like, hey, actually something that Brooke and I talked not too long ago was in regards of curriculum writing, how can we support curriculum scaffolds uh, for language? And what we said was like, Brooke just mentioned 48 programs. We're not attached. We're not touching 48 programs this summer. We're like, let's grab a couple and let's start there. Like which ones are like manageable? And then we're going to start little so that way we can scale up. So some small steps that are solid that we can build upon. Um, I would say that's the best way to start in some of these collaborations that can, that can bring fruit. Um, that was not the answer to this question, but I wanted to make sure I share that. <laughs> Good advice. Anything else specifically um, on the unauthorized, maybe? Julie, I don't know if there was anything from your research. Uh, no, I think that that is, you know, showing kids that they can um, take uh, classes and maybe it'll it'll be helpful to them later in a different way, even if they can't take the um, take the test to get the certification. But um, yeah, no, it was um, for the for the high school folks that we talked to is really um, quite quite an intractable problem. Um, but I wanted to say in terms of what to say um, in terms of advocacy, I think having numbers really helps, um, you know, and, and uh, having, again, the, the kinds of things that I talked about in terms of disaggregating even your English group, um, looking at your newcomers, at the speakers of different languages, at kids at different, um, kids who qualify for a free reduced price lunch versus those who don't, all of those different things. And, and being able to say, you know, can you show me the data in terms of who's actually taking these courses? And again, if there are discrepancies, it may, there may be a good reason for it. And just having a conversation about why do you think that there are these discrepancies or, or what, what more can we do? Um, and, and finding out who they've talked to, who, you know, have, have you actually asked in these um, communities, whether they'd be interested in doing more of this and if they have access, if they know about it, um, and just making sure that they, they've actually done that work in order to, you know, talk to the community. Sounds good. All right, well, I am um, obviously there is extremely high interest in all you've been talking about because um, uh, almost so many people have stuck with us despite rolling over. But before I really get in trouble with our communications director for being such a bad moderator and running over, I think we should wind up. Um, I just want to um, thank you, Grace and Brooke, for um, all of the great um, suggestions. And um, I just want to say um, from our perspective at MPI, a big thank you to the Annie E. Casey Foundation for um, supporting this work. It was great to get back out in the field and to find that some things actually um, have been improving in this space since we were out there uh, um, probably about uh, eight years ago, taking um, a bit of a look at these issues and mostly getting such negative reports. So um, uh, kudos for everyone in the field who's been working on these issues. And again, I'll just promise that um, that for those of you whose questions we didn't get to specifically answer, uh, we'll definitely uh, get back to you in the next day or two. 
So again, thanks very much to everyone. Um, really appreciate your interest in these issues and really appreciate uh, Grace and Brooke for sharing um, all of their, um, uh, their great ideas with us. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.